please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2, continuing our study through the book of Matthew, which we started here recently. I know it's a little early for the Christmas story, but uh, since we decided to start walking through Matthew, here we are. Um, I've entitled today's message, Jesus, the Revealer of Hearts. Jesus, the Revealer of Hearts. You're there in Matthew, but let me remind you of a passage out of Luke, chapter 2. When uh, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple as a baby to have him dedicated, and uh, they prayed over him, and, and there was a man there by the name of Simeon. And Simeon prophesied over the child Jesus, and he said this, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is a dividing line. Jesus is that separation of heart. The Bible says that the Word of God is that discerner of hearts. And of course, Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, is the, the real discerning of hearts. And how you respond to Jesus, how you embrace or reject Christ, is of really the utmost importance. It's one of the most important decisions in life, and it is a revelation of the heart. Matthew is going to present some events for us here in the Christmas story that are unique to his gospel. Uh, we are most often familiar with Luke's story of the nativity scene and the manger and, and how the shepherds came and the child was born there in Bethlehem. But Luke gives us some, excuse me, Matthew gives us some additional details and some of it surrounding not only the birth, but then some of the early time right after the birth of Christ. So we want to take a look at that now. Follow with me, picking it up in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Who is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, who had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them 
till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come to the ho- into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. As we read this account, I I want to draw your attention to the different responses that we see here to the news that a child, a Messiah, has been born in Israel. The first ones we'll consider here are these wise men. The Bible says they were wise men from the east and they came during the days of Herod the king. So this gives us a setting of the time period. Now, this Herod the king, this is a reference to Herod the Great. As you read through the New Testament, there's a lot of Herods that you, that you run across and you wonder which Herod is which. Well, this is Herod the Great. And he was the one that was the great builder in Jerusalem. He's the one that rebuilt the temple. The temple, of course, had been rebuilt by Nehemiah and, and his team, but, but Herod actually gave it a complete facelift. It was something spectacular. Jewish writings would say, if you have not seen Herod's temple, you've never seen a building. It was that magnificent. So Herod was quite a great builder and and he was the king over this region during this time. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more detail about his character. But know this, that he was reigning during this time that Jesus was born. Now, these wise men from the east, the Greek word for these men is magi. You've probably heard them, the magi that came to visit Christ. They were wise men. They were philosophers, men of science, astronomers, men who studied the stars and the heavens. And they were from the east. Now, as we think about how these men might have known about this Jewish Messiah, how is it that they would have been familiar with the idea that there would be one day a king of the Jews born in Israel. We must remember that Daniel was also once a wise man. This would be many hundreds of years before. And he, li- he lived in the area of Babylon. You remember the prophet Daniel. And he prophesied of these things and he studied the scriptures and he had these things in his day and they were in Babylon. That was the land to the east. And something of that culture probably was affected by these Jewish scribes and Jewish wise men that lived during that time. And there was a Jewish population that had settled and and, you know, lived in those areas. So the Jewish scriptures were available. It's possible that these wise men were some kind of a, of, a, of a group that had descended from maybe Daniel's wise men. These were the men that would counseled the king during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel lived on into the following reigns as well. It's just a, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't. It doesn't strike us as impossible to know that, hey, there were guys in the East that were certainly aware of some of the Jewish prophecies. But they see a star. 
And this is something that they would have noticed because they were men who watched the stars. And they would have been men of um, probably some prominence and wealth, maybe even counselors for the political rulers and leaders of their nation. And so they came and they received this audience with Herod the king. Now, you know, traditionally, we often think of the wise men as three, right? Three wise men came uh, to see Christ. But the scriptures don't tell us that there were three. We know that there were three types of gifts that were offered, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But most likely, this was many more than just three wise men. This journey from the east would have taken several months to, to, to cross, they probably came with quite a large group, quite an entourage to see this event that they'd witnessed somehow in the stars. Not only that, you know, just three wise men coming into town. It's not likely they would have gained audience before the king. It's not likely that all of Jerusalem would have been troubled. They came to town and something was stirring. So quite probable it was many more than three and they were there to see the king of the Jews. We have seen his star. A lot of ideas about this star. What star did they see? A lot of uh, scholars have tried to, to, to describe some natural phenomenon that they might have seen. Maybe some alignment of planets, some special alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, some comet or supernova perhaps. But they said, we have seen his star. As we follow the story, it seems that the star appeared to them while they were in the east. And so they knew to go at least to Jerusalem. But the star must have disappeared because as they get to Jerusalem, they're not sure where to go. Where is he supposed to be born? And it's as they go now towards Bethlehem that once again the star appears. And, you know, stars are not the type that appear, disappear, reappear. So this is some kind of a supernatural uh, appearing that God is giving these wise men in the stars. It's quite possible that it is some type of an angelic appearance radiating as a star, drawing these men to the event and then leading them. It says it led them directly to the house where the child was. So it had to be some type of a, a supernatural work that God was doing to draw these men to witness Christ. And, you know, it took at least several months for them to make this journey. And that's not counting the time that it took for them to kind of get ready for the journey once they decided they were going to make the journey. And it says that they did not, in verse 11, it doesn't tell us, tell us that they came to the manger, but they came to the house. They didn't see the infant, but they saw the young child. Now, I know we have a lot of nativity scenes that have the three little wise men right in there in the manger with G, baby Jesus, Mary and Joseph, the, the uh, animals and, and the shepherds. But most likely those nativity scenes are not biblical. Because it doesn't seem that the, that the uh, wise men had time to get to the manger before they were actually living now in a house in Bethlehem. So here's what I suggest for your nativity scenes. On one side of your mantle, you put the manger, the baby and, and you know, the, the, uh, 
the animals and, 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 and the shepherds. On the other side of the mantle, you put the wise men and you make it look like they're moving towards the baby. Maybe a little, little notation on their way. And then you're, at least your nativity scenes will be biblical. But um, don't worry about it. I put up, we put up ours and it's not biblical, but it looks good. So we, we, we're okay with that. But these guys were seekers. And, and that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the heart of these wise men. Now, these were Gentiles. These were not men of, of, of Israel. These were not men of, of, of Jewish uh, faith or, or tradition. But they were those that looked to the heavens. They were those that were in search of truth, in search of wisdom. They were wise men, the scripture says. And the Bible reveals to us that there are things that can be discerned for hearts that are truly seeking truth. In fact, in Romans 1.20, it says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has communicated something of who he is, even in his creation. And what's interesting is that God speaks to these men in the area that they are looking. God meets them where they are. They're studying the stars. They're seeking for truth and order and meaning. And so God meets them there. He reveals himself there in the star, drawing them to Christ. And I think that the Lord is always speaking to those that are seeking and those that are listening and searching. And I think if you think even of your own story to Christ, how did you find Christ? God met you in some way where you were, some occasion, some, you know, the stories vary as many as there are that come to Christ. How the Lord found a way to break into your world and, and reveal to your heart that he loved you and that he'd sent his son for you. And these men, they're students of the stars, and God meets them there in the stars, and he draws them and he leads them. Psalm 19, David says this, you don't need to turn. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. The psalmist said, you know, the heavens are declaring the glory of God all the time, everywhere, in every language. But not just in the heavens. I believe that God is speaking to all hearts that are in search of truth. Jesus said this, Uh, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. God is speaking to those hearts that are seeking. And I think this is, you know, the most important question that every man and woman has to ask Why am I here? Is there a God? Is there a purpose to my life? Is there more meaning than what I'm experiencing just living my life? And that's a question that needs to be asked. 
And that's a question that really, as these as these wise men look the distance that they traveled, something in their heart thought we've seen something divine. There's an answer here for us, and we are going to follow it until we discover what it is. And that's the kind of heart that I believe God is looking to draw to Christ. The heart that says, you know what, I've got to know. I've got to know if God, if there's a God and if, if I can know him and if I can relate to him and if there's a purpose, why am I here? And these wise men were seeking these questions and God was drawing them to the answer. And when they found him, when they came to the child, they fell down at his feet and they worshiped him. And when the heart that is seeking truth finds Jesus, that's the right response. You surrender to him and you worship him. They present gifts, gold, a symbol of his kingship, frankincense, of course, uh, that which would be used by the priesthood and myrrh. Myrrh was an embalming uh, spice that was used in death, even speaking of Jesus's sacrificial death, even in the gifts that they presented. There is prophetic importance into who he is and who he would become. And Jesus reveals their hearts. And it's their good hearts. These are hearts that are really desiring truth and wanting to know God if he can be known. And they find a personal relationship with him. And they bow before him in worship as they find Jesus. You know, what are you looking for? What are the questions you're asking? Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord. But maybe you're here today and you don't know him in a personal way. And you're wondering, you know, is there anything more to life than what I'm experiencing? Because it seems empty and I'm frustrated and I, I'm wondering if there's meaning and purpose. You know, it's not coincidence that you would be here to, today to hear that there are others that have sought those questions and found answer in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to, to ask, to seek, to knock. If it's sincere, Jesus will lead you to himself. I was in the church office here. This was a few years back. And I was sitting up in the front at the glass there where you can kind of see out into the parking lot. And a couple of guys came in in a pickup truck and parked in front of the office. And one of the brothers I recognized, a guy that goes to the church, and he got out and he came into the office. And he said, hey, pastor, have you got a, you got a few minutes? I said, sure, what's up? And I said, you see that guy in the truck? I said, yeah. He says, well, I'm trying to get him saved, but I don't know if I'm doing it right. <clears throat> I said, well, bring him in here. Let's work him over. Let's uh, <laughs> we'll double team him. <clears throat> and he came in and I said, so, you know, he introduced himself. I said, so what's going on? He said, you know, he said, I'm just tired. I'm tired of living my life the way I'm living it. I'm tired of not knowing what, what I'm doing. I'm frustrated with just all the things that aren't working out in my life. And I, I feel empty. And I'm just feeling like there's got to be more. And, and I'm, just, I'm just really looking for something else. And so we began to share the gospel with him. We said, you know, God's got something else for you. There is more. He loves you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins so that you could come into a personal relationship with him. You can know God. You can meet him right now. 
He loves you. He cares about you. He's got a beautiful plan and purpose for your life. And as he sat there in that office, the three of us, he looked at me and he said, Pastor, these are beautiful words you're saying to me. These are beautiful words. That was his quote. And he accepted Christ. He still fellowships with us here today. I'm not going to tell you his name. I don't want to embarrass him. He was in the first service. So don't look around right now. (laughs) But, you know, his heart was hungry. His heart was seeking. And And when he saw Jesus, just like the wise men, he bowed down and he worshiped and received Christ. And it's a beautiful testimony. God's working in his life. He's serving the Lord here faithfully and just seeing a beautiful work of God in his life. The other, uh, some other people here in our text that I want to draw your attention to, some other characters in the story, are the chief priests and the scribes. Now, they also are in the text, and we see there in verse 3 that Herod, when he was troubled, he gathered them, these chief priests and scribes, together, and he said, look, uh, these guys are here looking for the king, uh, a king that's born. Where would he be born? And the chief priests and the scribes, they answered him. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea. They knew immediately what the prophecies said. They knew where the Messiah would appear. They knew that the Messiah was coming, and they knew where he would come. These uh, priests and scribes were well acquainted with the prophecies, and they had the right answer. But what happened after they gave Herod the answer and the Magi went on to see Christ, the chief priests and the scribes, they didn't go. In fact, they seemed to respond with a heart of indifference. Oh, yeah, they, give the, they, they know the right Bible answer, but there's nothing in them that seems to be drawn to go and see, could it be? Maybe something in their mind dismissed it as just a fable or something that really, you know, if, if God were going to do anything like that, we would be the first to know about it. Maybe something of their pride. But for whatever reason, we notice it has to stand out to us. Here's these guys have come all have come months on a journey to see this Christ child and the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests. They're not even interested to look. They don't even take the time. And and by the way, Bethlehem is only five miles outside of Jerusalem. It would have been a short trip for them to go and see the, the, the Messiah as well. John said this in John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They knew, but they did not go to see. The shepherds went. The magi, the wise men went. But not not the religious rulers and leaders of the day. Jesus would later say this to these same scribes and chief priests. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Maybe you've experienced this. I know that I have. It seems often that the hardest people to really win to Christ are the, are the ones who already think themselves religious. 
They already have kind of a working knowledge of the Bible. They've, they've kind of been in, you know, inoculated to the gospel. They've heard it. They know it. But their heart is indifferent to Jesus. Oh, yeah, I, I know. I know. I've read the Bible. Oh, believe me, I used to read. You know, I've, I've read the whole New Testament. I, I, you know, people tell me all that. Yet they don't live for the Lord. You have no relationship with God. Oh, don't worry about me. I, I, I'm a good person. It's worked out. I know what the Bible says. I know the story. But there's really no surrendering of the heart, no real commitment to come and worship, to come and give your life, your heart, as the wise men, even their resources, their gifts, to worship and honor Jesus for who he is. This idea that somehow if I just have a head knowledge of the story, I'm good. God isn't looking for you to have just some head knowledge, some facts about a story. God is looking for a heart that is His and that is united with His. God is looking to save and rescue you from your life, not just you living your life knowing about Him. So we see that these scribes, these high priests, these leaders missed the real essence of relationship with Christ. Maybe you've noticed it. I have even amongst some of my Christian friends when I was younger in the Lord, to be honest, I think for a long while I was kind of lukewarm. And I had a circle of Christian friends and we were all lukewarm together. We got along just beautifully. <laughs> and then the Lord started to call my heart and, and, you know, begin to draw me into a deeper commitment and to a, a closer walk with him. I've got a long way to go. And I don't, don't say this to you know, imagine that I have now somehow arrived at some level of maturity. But as I began to respond to that drawing of God in my life, I found that there were some that just had no interest in that at all. And the friendships began to distance and the paths went different because I wanted more of Jesus and they didn't want any more of Jesus. They were quite comfortable where they were. And you may find this in your walk as as you draw closer to the Lord. Unfortunately, it seems the crowd thins and there are less that are really wanting to go the distance and be that surrendered servant of Christ. Well, let's continue on in our text. Pick it up with me in verse 13. Yeah, we've been introduced to Herod. He's the next character I want us to take a look at his heart. We'll get a little more insight into him now as we press forward. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet." saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem 
and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We're going to meet Herod and his heart in this passage. Firstly, the Lord warns Joseph in a dream and says, you need to flee to Egypt. Herod's coming for the child. He's going to look to destroy and kill him. You've got to get out. And so Joseph takes his young family, his young, young wife, and this newborn young child, and off they go to Egypt. Now, Matthew ties in prophecy, and we'll notice this. Remember, Matthew is writing with that Jewish reader in mind. So he often brings in the Old Testament prophetic words to kind of, uh, you know, endorse the story and see how it's a fulfillment of things spoken by the prophets. And he quotes this passage out of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. Now, in truth, this was a prophecy that was also fulfilled in Jeremiah's day when Babylon came and took captive the nation. Many of the children and families were destroyed, and Jeremiah prophesied that there would be this weeping Rachel, the mother of, 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 of Israel, weeping over her lost children, but also fulfilled here in this passage as Herod killed these young children in Bethlehem. And this is often the case in prophecy. There are more than there there is often a short term fulfillment, but then often these prophecies speak into second and third fulfillments as time goes on. God speaks out through generations prophetically. And uh, Matthew is bringing that in. Now also Joseph fleeing to Egypt and he says, when uh, I will call my son out of Egypt. Remember Joseph uh, from Genesis who went to Egypt and Jacob and his family had to flee to Egypt, uh, getting away from the famine. They found refuge in Egypt until God sent word, Moses, and brought them out of Egypt. And in a like way, now Jesus is, being, is fleeing also to Egypt, waiting for word, and God will bring him back out of Egypt. So you, again, you begin to see how God is kind of weaving in prophecy into the story of Jesus. Now, there would have been quite a few Jews living there in Egypt. He, it's estimated by scholars that there may have been a million uh, Jewish people settled there and living there. So Joseph and his family would have been safe and secure during this time. Remember, the Jews had been dispersed and many of them had settled in those nations and developed their own communities. So God is looking to protect and he's protecting from what Herod is doing. And Herod, no doubt, is jealous and insecure about his own throne, but also, I'm sure, being motivated by the devil himself. Herod. This guy was a violent, jealous leader. In fact, he killed many who he believed would threaten his rule, including his wife, 
and three of his own sons. This is the kind of man Herod was. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. He considered himself to be Jewish. He practiced as though he was a leader of the Jewish nation, but they never really accepted him. They, they embraced his buildings as he built the temple that gave some endearment to him. But as he grew older, uh, he really began to lose his mind. And as I said, he began to, to murder off those that he thought would be in any way threatening to him. And he goes and he kills these babies two years and under. This is another indication that when the wise men arrived, it wasn't while Jesus was an infant, but because Herod goes and kills two years and under. So clearly he believed that they saw the star within a couple of years. So he does this. And what strikes me is that this is often the way the enemy works. He looks to destroy something in its infancy, when it's young, when it's just getting started. I've seen it happen in, in believers' lives. People come to Christ. There is this initial joy and, and surge of, of grace upon their life. But then almost immediately, there's a trial. Almost immediately, Satan comes in to try and undo what has begun. Wanting to get at it while it's still young and vulnerable, before it has time to mature, before it has time to really take root and strengthen in your life. It's a scheme of the enemy. It happens in our personal lives. I believe it happens in ministry. It, ha it can happen in churches. That, that Satan wants to attack what's vulnerable. And he is looking to snuff out this Messiah before he even comes of age. And he's motivating and stirring up Herod. And he was an easy target because he was already minded that way. And we see his heart, don't we? We see a heart that is filled with darkness. John 3:19. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil, listen, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Herod hates this idea of a Jewish Messiah. He hates the light because of his own wicked and evil and dark heart. It seems to me that we're witnessing some of this kind of darkness even in our own age, aren't we? Some of the barbaric hatred that's coming against Christians, you know, in the Middle East, for example. I mean, these are not just differences of faith. These are violent hatred, uh, you know, just, just barbaric acts against people claiming to be followers of Christ. And I think even in our own culture, even in our own time, we're beginning to see a certain spirit that is rising up against Christ. And it's not just this kind of, you know, uh, indifference, you know, you worship Jesus, I'll do my thing. There are some like that. But some, they hate you for calling yourself a Christian. And they hate you mentioning Christ. And they hate you trying to, you know, pray in Jesus' name. And they don't want it in the schools. And they don't want it in the workplace. They hate the light. 
because their deeds are evil and their heart is dark. And so we see this kind of heart being exposed. You know, you can talk about Buddha. You can talk about Hinduism. You know, you can have open discussions in the workplace. You mentioned Jesus. You watch the blood boil. You watch the, the tone change for those that are really steeped against Christ. And so Jesus is a revealer of hearts. Jesus is that dividing line between truth and, and, and falseness, between darkness and light. Finally, I want us to finish up the chapter here, and I, I want to just talk briefly about Joseph and Mary, their hearts. Now, when Herod was dead, verse 19, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, God often using dreams to speak to Joseph, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Joseph and Mary's hearts are hearts that are obedient at almost any cost and sacrifice. Do you imagine that Joseph and Mary were getting married as a young couple thinking that this would be their early years of marriage? That they would be fleeing for the life of their child to Egypt and spending some years there and coming back and having all of this really upset to their plans and all the things that they might have imagined their life was going to be. God had something else in mind and was all centered around Jesus. But their hearts are surrendered. We saw Mary, even when she heard that she was going to be with child, praise be God, praise God. But, you know, she began to rejoice in God, her Savior, who, who has shown me kindness and favor that I would have this privilege Joseph being spoken to by the Lord in a dream. We see how careful and obedient he is. These are not easy things. Hey, I want you to move to Egypt for a while because the king here is going to try and kill your son. Oh, praise the Lord. That's the dream I've been praying for. That's what I always hoped my ministry would look like. Oh, yeah, this is this, these are hearts that are submitted to Christ. And, and again, Jesus reveals the hearts. Well, what's your heart about? Are you about him? Are you about his business? Are you about his kingdom? Or are you about kind of bringing him to yours? Jesus, I got plans. Don't worry. You know, we'll, you, just, you just listen to me and stick with me. And I, no, Jesus has a plan for your life. God has something for you in Christ. And the heart is revealed here in Joseph and Mary because at any cost, Whatever it takes, like Isaiah the prophet, Lord, here am I, send me. I am your servant. 
I am here to be a part of your work in the earth. And we see this humble obedience in the hearts of Joseph and Mary. And I think it speaks to our hearts as well. That we would be surrendered to him. That we would not be looking to to bring our will, but rather following his will. Where will he send you? Where will he ask you to go? Will you go? How do missionaries get sent out? Oh, they just, people just love to go. No, they don't. God calls them. God speaks into their heart. How does the gospel go out? Because God moves the heart and sends his people to bring Christ, to witness for Christ. You know, a few things here. We'll close just a few points in this text I want to share with you. Um, When Joseph is free to come back, he comes to the logical choice of Judea. Now, Judea was kind of the spiritual capital of the nation. Jerusalem was there. I mean, they know now that they have the Messiah that, that, that they're raising, and he needs to be in Judea. He needs to grow up in Judea. He needs to be close to Jerusalem. This is where the spiritual things are happening. But as he arrives there, he's not safe there yet. Archelaus, who is Herod's son, now he's not trying to kill the Messiah, but he's, he's a very incompetent and violent ruler also. And in fact, Rome would eventually remove him. He was such a troublemaker. But the, the, the angel warns Joseph, no, no, I don't want you to settle in Judea. That seems like the right place. That seems like the logical choice. But I want you to go to the region of Galilee, and I want you to settle back in the city of Nazareth. Now, Galilee was not known as a religious area. In fact, it was known as an area that was kind of compromised, a lot of Gentile uh, uh, involvement there, non-Jewish, non-Israelites there. They were not respected. They were looked down upon by those of Judea. You remember when when Philip invited Nathanael? Nathanael, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you sure that's where he's from? Because that's not really where he should be from. That was not a real good spiritual pedigree. That's not the right school. That's not the right neighborhood. That's not the right place for the Messiah to be coming from. Of course, once he met Jesus, he knew that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And this verse 23, Matthew says this, Spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. He says the prophets, speaks plurally of the prophets. There is not one Old Testament verse that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. There we have no specific reference that we can go to. What's, what's Matthew saying? Is he misquoting the scripture? Is he, is he wrong about this prophets declaring this? Well, when we consider what Nazareth represented during that time, it was a place, as I said, of no reputation. It was a place that you would least expect the spiritual leader to come from. And that is throughout the prophets, that he will not be well respected, that he will not be embraced by his own. 
Matthew is saying that because he comes from Nazareth, that's in perfect alignment with what all the prophets said of him, that he would be despised and rejected by men. He's tying the humility of coming from Nazareth to the Messiah. I'll quote Spurgeon here. I think he gets it. He gets this point I'm trying to make. He meant that the prophets have described the Messiah as one that would be despised and rejected of men. They spoke of him as a great prince and conqueror when they described his second coming, talking about the prophets. But they set forth his first coming when they spoke of him as a root out of a dry ground without form or comeliness, who when he should be seen would have no beauty that men should desire him. The prophets said that he would be called by a despicable title, and it was so, for his countrymen called him a Nazarene. As you look through the New Testament, Jesus what does it often say? Jesus of Nazareth. He'd carry that baggage his whole life. But it speaks to the wisdom of God. It speaks to the nature of God. God's not impressed with, with man's titles and, and lofty pedigree. God can use even a man from Nazareth because it's Jesus. God is trying to communicate that he is looking for those of humble heart. That's why Joseph and Mary are the perfect couple. Because they're humble. They're not much of, in the way of finances and resource. By the way, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that came in handy to finance this whole trip to Egypt and back. God providing what they needed, not because they had it but because God was overseeing it. And their humble obedience, Lord, I'll go where you send me. I'll say what you tell me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. Because it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this lesson for us today in Matthew chapter 2. We see, Lord, a beautiful revelation of hearts Jesus when the, when the truth of Christ speaks to a heart what's in the heart becomes revealed and Lord I'm praying today that you will touch our hearts that we will be Lord those that would respond like the wise men that we would pursue you and that we would bow down before you and worship you, that we would recognize who you are and what you mean. Lord, that we would be like Joseph and Mary, prepared to go to the ends of the earth should you call us, should you require it of us. Lord, I don't believe you're calling us all to the mission field. I, I don't think you're calling each and every one of us out into some remote part of the earth. Maybe some. But Lord, certainly you are calling all of us to be ambassadors for Christ. And Lord, our hearts need to be open and receptive to your commands. And as our heads are bowed here, church, and we close in prayer, I do want to give opportunity. If you're here today and, and you need to respond to the Lord, I'd love to pray for you. 
You may be here today and you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've heard the Bible stories. This is the Christmas story. I'm sure you've heard some of that. Maybe you know some of the verses. Maybe you've spent some time around religious places and, and Bible uh, information. But it's, it's nothing that has really come to the heart yet. And today God is saying, listen, I'm after your heart. Jesus is the revealer of hearts, not, not heads and, and you know, knowledge. But what's going on at the heart? Will you come and worship him? Will you come and call him Lord and Savior of your life? Will you allow him to forgive you and to cleanse you of your sin? No one else can offer you this. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. I'd love to pray for you if you've never received Christ and your heart is ready. Maybe you're here today and you need to rededicate, recommit your life to the Lord. At one time you did have a relationship with Him. You may have even walked close at one season of your life. But today you are far and distant from the Lord Jesus. You're not walking in that kind of surrendered humility before Him that would say, Jesus... You lead me. You guide me. You direct my steps. I'm yours. You be Lord again in my heart. I'd love to pray for you if you need to rededicate or recommit your heart to him. So if you're here, here today and you want to receive Christ for the very first time or you want to rededicate your life to him, would you raise your hand where you're seated? Let me see you and I'll pray for you. God bless you. Here in the center, my left as well. Upstairs, over here on the right, a couple hands. And you, ma'am, as well. Any others? Let me see you. God bless you. I want to pray for you. Amen. Anyone else? A number of hands here, a number of hearts responding. It's between you and the Lord. Jesus knows your heart. And it may be that he's revealed it to you today. And this is your chance to surrender it again and afresh to him. Just before I pray, anyone else? Let me see your hand. And so, Lord, for these that have responded to you, a number of hearts, Lord, crying out to you, I pray that you would meet them. God, I know that you are faithful to meet them. Lord, it's no coincidence that they're here today. You were drawing them long before they got into the building. Lord, your, your star was drawing their heart just like those wise men long before they got to their knees. But now they're here and they've come back to you. And Lord, we come and we surrender before you and we bow down and we worship you. And we say, Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the one who died on the cross for my sin. Forgive me today and cleanse me. Refresh my heart. Make it new in you. And Lord, help me by your spirit to live for you, your calling, your purpose. That you might be glorified in my life and through my life. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.